We've often talked about how there are three ways that Satan attacks his church. Uh, not his church, God's church, Christ's church. Persecution, deception, and seduction. Persecution, deception, and seduction. And with persecution, deception, and seduction, our default might be thinking people from the outside coming and attacking the church this way. But here's what's interesting as you read throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. There are two places where opposition comes, both external, which is what we often think of, but also internal. There can be opposition. There can be struggle. There can be a mess within the church. It's not new. God's people have always had a hard time with God's people. Did you know that? You're like, no way even dating back to the Old Testament. There's a reason why Jesus prays in John chapter 17, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The unity of God's people is hard, because though we are saints in Christ, we are sinners. We know that. And guess what sinners do? Sin, which causes disunity. So here's the main point of today's text. The unity of God's people is hard, but worth fighting for. The unity of God's people is hard. It's hard work, but it's worth fighting for. Please open in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22. We're just going our next passage in the book of Joshua. Next week will be our last message going through chapter 23 and 24. But today we're in Joshua 22. And we will find that on the heels of the people of Israel entering the promised land, where they have their inheritance, that's what we looked at a couple weeks ago, chapters 13 through 21, they have their inheritance, they're in the promised land, God kept his promise, this should be going really well, that there's internal conflict. A war within God's people is about to start. Look at Joshua chapter 22, we're going to start a little bit in the middle, look at verse 10. Starting at verse 10, chapter 22 of Joshua, starting at verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. Verse 12, And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of, of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Well, that escalated quickly. It's like, Everything seemed to be like kind of going well. And then like you get to the end of verse 12 and you're like, they're ready to make war. Like they gather their swords and spears. They're ready to go. And you're like, what happened? What in the world is going on? Let me give you some of the backstory. So we're going to kind of work backwards and then come back to this. Point number one today is a unified send-off. A unified send-off. In Numbers 32, we find that these 
two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe Manasseh, are growing very quickly. And they request of Moses, this is when Moses is still alive, an inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. Moses agrees, but makes them promise, hey, when we cross over the Jordan, we need your guys to still help us because there's going to be a lot of battle and we need your help. And they say, yes, we'll do it. Then we saw in Joshua chapter one that Joshua goes to these two and a half tribes and says, hey, we're going across. Are you going with us? Because the transfer of leadership can't be assumed, right? So they made the promise to Moses, not to Joshua. Now Joshua's coming and saying, are we still good? They say, yes, we're going with you. And they do. That's a big deal for the transfer of leadership. So fast forward now to the beginning of Joshua 22. Read with me, starting at verse 1 of 22. This is how this chapter starts. So we just saw the war that was about to break out. We don't even smell the aroma of war, what we're about to read. It says, At that time Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe Manasseh, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charges of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where, you, uh, where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 6, so Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Sounds pretty good. Not a lot of swords and spears at this point. Joshua says, you fulfilled your promise. Guys, you did great. Thank you for fulfilling your promise. You can go home now. It's a lot of encouragement, but verse 5 is important. Only be very careful to observe the commandments and the laws of Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to what? Love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commands, to cling to him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Joshua is basically encouraging them to faithfulness, which we've seen as a theme throughout the book of Joshua. Faithfulness, faithfulness. Be faithful. Honor the Lord. Honor Yahweh, for he is a faithful God. Walk in faithfulness. Then in verse 7 through 9, which I'm not going to read it just to summarize, there's a material blessing that Joshua kind of pours out to these two and a half tribes. says, good job. You guys have done really well. Here's some, some wealth and some plunder we've gotten. Go be in peace. Go be with your families. Be blessed. This is awesome. So you get to the end of verse 9, you're like, that was great. They fulfilled their promise. They go back to their wives and their children. They're going back to the other side of the Jordan. This is going to be good. Wow, they really are living in the rest that God gave them. It's a unified send-off, and it's sweet, and it's good, but it does not last for more than a few hours, it seems like. (laughs) Friends, our unity is not guaranteed to last. We must work at it. And let's just be honest, little foxes can spoil the vineyard. It does not take very much to bring disunity. A critical word, a little bit of gossip, an unattended hurt, even clear sin, the body of Christ can be fractured with cracks because of disunity. And being a part of God's people can be messy 
There are times if care and attention and repentance and forgiveness is not worked at, we can be on the verge of internal war. That's exactly where Israel finds itself. Point number two, on the verge of internal war. Let's look at verse 10 again. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, so this is talking about the two and a half tribes, to the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. This altar is going to be a big deal. So remember this altar here. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. Where that altar is, on the side of the people of Israel, on the west side is going to be important. Remember that one. When the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh, which is kind of their base camp, to make war against them. You're like, man alive. Why are these guys getting all upset? Why are the nine and a half tribes of Israel, which is summarized the people of Israel here, why are they so upset? Like, this is just like, like it's huge blow up that's about to happen. Why? Two reasons. First, because making another sacrificial altar goes against God's clear commands. Remember the text in verse 5, it says, Be very careful to observe the commandment and law of Moses. Deuteronomy 12.4 tells the Israelites to not set up alternative altars for sacrifice. There's only one altar that Yahweh wants. And then Deuteronomy 12.13 and 14 say this, Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. There's one altar. So you start kind of understanding something's going wrong, that there's another altar being built. So that's the first reason there's another altar. You're not supposed to have a second sacrificial altar. But the second reason that the people of Israel are ticked off and freaking out is because they've seen what happens when a small group of Israelites go against Yahweh and there's consequences to the massive group of Israelites. We'll see later in the text the the time in Peor is mentioned. In Peor, in Numbers chapter 25, there's a rebellion. Many Israelites go after uh, other gods. They start worshiping Baal. And they're like, whoa, 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 this is bad. There's a plague that comes upon Israel because of these that were worshiping Baal. And 24,000 Israelites die because of the disobedience. So now you're starting to get a clue of like why they're getting a little upset. Like family members that they know probably passed away. Like there are friends that they're aware of who died. Like, do not rebel against God. And then we saw in Joshua chapter 7 just a few weeks ago that as Achan took some of the plunder at Jericho when they were not supposed to take any of it, they go up to Ai to fight the next battle and 13 soldiers are killed. The little Ai, this is like a, a JV team and they're coming against them and Ai takes them down. They're like, what happened? Well, Achan had sinned. A few sin and all suffer. So now you're starting to understand why they gather to make war. 
Because if these two and a half tribes all of a sudden set up a, a separate, different sacrificial system, this is going to be trouble. You've got to honor the Lord. So look at verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent the people, sorry, sent to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of the family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against, the, against God of Israel and turned away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not enough of the sins of Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow He will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. They're like, come over here. We're will- like, live among us. Don't do this. Continuing, it says, only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith? In the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon the, all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Phineas and this delegation are intense. They are bold. They are zealous for purity, zealous to care for and guard and protect God's people. They've seen people die because of Israel's rebellion before, and they do not want to see it again. And there's a really good desire for purity here, a really good desire for asking questions and demanding answers. In the New Testament era, you kind of get the aroma of church discipline here. If there's sin or questions about sin, you go to the person. You go once. If there's sin and there's, there's a hardness, you go a second time, taking two or three. And if there's continual hardness about true sin being there, you take, tell it to the church. And then that person no longer is communing with the church. They're not showing that they're a follower of Christ. The whole time there's a desire for reconciliation, a desire for unity, a desire for God to be honored, glorified, and for the purity of the church. This is all good. And let's note that also it's good that the Israelites coming from the west side of the Jordan, ready to make war, don't make war immediately. It was good and wise to send a delegation and start asking questions. Why was that good and wise? Because they were wrong. They were wrong. It's a fascinating text. They come and they're ready to make war for purity, for doctrinal fidelity. And they're wrong. Friends, part of the messiness of the Christian life and church life is that sometimes in our zeal and doctrinal fidelity, we don't have the full picture. We can can be wrong. You can be wrong. I can be wrong. Our text continues with these two and a half tribes 
bringing clarity that brings unity. Clarity that brings unity. Look at verse 21. And then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe Manasseh, said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. Kill us if we're lying. Verse 23, for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Basically, we didn't do that. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. Verse 24, no, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, we, uh, excuse me, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben, people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for, burning, for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness." between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, a copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. So the two and a half tribes are clearing things up and they equally have an intensity, an appeal. And it's a wise appeal and rationale for their appeal is not just, hey, let's work this out. Their appeals to Yahweh. Their appeal is to God. Verse 22, the mighty one, God, the Lord, Yahweh, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. Like Moses, when he's accused by Korah, and he says, let's just stand before God, and God can kill whoever's lying. Like the earth opens up, Korah and his family's gone. It's like, I guess Korah was lying because Moses is still here. That's basically a similar appeal. Like God knows. God sees. God strike us down if we're lying. God knows the integrity of our hearts. And there's an intensity here, a good appeal with God as my witness. Commentator David Howard highlights that verse 22, that repetition, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. This is the only time in the Old Testament that this happens. This like piling up like this of words of who God is, this appeal. This is the only place in the Old Testament this happens because these guys are aggressively appealing. They can smell war is coming. We're about to die because we're being misunderstood. And they are eager for vindication because there are false charges coming. 
So let's look at their rationale. Verse 24 through 29, it says they built a copy of the altar to be a witness. More stones of witness. We've seen that in Joshua over and over and over. Stones of witness, stones of witness, stones of remembrance. More stones of witness in Joshua that show that these two and a half tribes are part of Israel. They worship the same God. The point of this altar of witness, these stones of witness, is not even necessarily for them. It's for the next generation. They aren't building a massive altar to offer sacrifices, but they build it as witnessing, as a unifying, as a remembering monument. It's pretty clear that they aren't trying to build a secret altar for everybody can see it. It's not like some, hey, we're going to be over here. No, they build it right there where everybody can see it. And they even more, and this is important, they build it on the west side of the Jordan, which is where the nine and a half tribes live, not where they live. So half of the year, the, flood, the, the Jordan's flooded. They can't even get to it. Unless they like swim across and then they are doing their like sacrifices over there. They're not saying, hey, we're trying to do this. It's over there on your land, but it's as a witness. It's as a copy of the altar that's at the tabernacle showing the importance of the altar at the tabernacle that unifies both sides in worshiping Yahweh. And this generation needs to remember the unity of worshiping Yahweh, but even more the next. And we'll see next week when we're getting in uh, chapters 23 and 24, there's probably a reason why these two and a half tribes are concerned about the next generation. Like, we don't really get that a lot in chapter 23. Like, are they judging the next generation? Are they not going to pass it down? We'll get into that next, next, uh, next week. Because there's a reason they're like, hey, we don't want our kids to not be allowed to go the, to the tabernacle. Because there's only one place at this point in history where you go and worship Yahweh. And it's at the tabernacle. So the two and a half tribes are concerned They want there to be unity. And friends, let's note in the book of Joshua how often it speaks of and about the next generation. This book of the Bible continues to have piles of rocks to speak of God's faithfulness to tell the next generation. So there's the rocks of remembrance at the Jordan River. There's the rocks of remembrance in the Jordan River speaking of God's faithfulness to bless. There's the stones of remembrance over Achan's body and his family. There's the stones of remembrance over the king of Ai, the five kings of the Amorites, speaking God's faithfulness to judge. Each generation needs to know. Each generation is going to have little kids saying, hey, what are those rocks over there? What's a random pile of rocks doing? Well, let me tell you about Achan. Well, let me tell you about the crossing of the Jordan. Let me tell you about the five Amorite kings who rebelled against God. Each generation needs to hear about God from the generation ahead of them. But here we have a different rationale for the stones of remembrance. We saw God's faithfulness to bless, God's faithfulness to judge. Here we have stones that speak of God's faithfulness to unify. God's faithfulness to unify. And this is not the unity of man's accomplishments like the Tower of Babel. Hey, we build our stones to go up as high as possible to reach the heaven to show how good we are. No, this is an altar that's a copy 
of the tabernacle where sacrifices were made, sacrifices to make atonement for the sins of the people between man and God, and the 12 tribes are unified. Commentator David Jackman summarizes it this way. The significant physical barrier of the Jordan River presents an obstacle for the two and a half, to the two and a half tribes. They were loyal to Yahweh and wanted the coming generations of those west of the Jordan to remember that. They wanted to be able to worship at the tabernacle and worship Yahweh through the sacrificial system. The new altar was not for sacrifice, but for witness. Their purpose was therefore the very opposite of what the Western delegation had feared. Rather than rebellion, it was intended as a mark of loyalty and unity. So let's look at how Phineas and the delegation respond. Look at verse 30. When Phineas, the priests, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel, who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh spoke, this is wonderful, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, of the, in the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. Verse 33, the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel, and the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said it is a witness between us that the Lord is our God. Conflict alleviated. War averted. Unity preserved. And notice at the end, the witness of the altar, it's a witness between us, east and west, that the Lord, Yahweh, is God. So it's a witness here, but even more, it's a witness of who God is. Unified worship and unified witness. So as we come to the end of the, this passage, chapter 22, it speaks of and can help us in understanding reconciliation. Biblical patterns for reconciliation. So let me give you five. First is this. And this is for us. This isn't just for Old Testament people. This is for us living in 2023. First, assumptions are the breeding ground of war. Assumptions are the breeding ground of war. We saw in verses 10 through 12 that everyone is ticked off. They were gathered to make war with their brothers. And if the east side, the two and a half tribes, made an altar that they were going to do false worship and another sacrifice, then these west uh, side guys are correct, but they don't know for sure. Oh, friends, how easy it is to make assumptions. You can have your theology correct 
and your perceptions incorrect. You can see actions and misunderstand intentions. Instead of believing the best or asking questions, we draw conclusions which may be wrong, and we're all capable of this. Sometimes we need to slow down when there's conflict and be like, okay, where are my blind spots? Well, because I have blind spots, this means I don't see them, which means I need other people to help me. I need to get other people to help me in this situation. Slowing down, not rushing into conflict, not gathering the swords and the spears and the shields, and we're going to make war! Slowing down. I remember Sharon Hawkins. She, so Jim Hawkins is a former pastor who helped plant our church. Sharon's his wife. And I remember Sharon telling one time that she and Jim were just having a lot of conflict. And she was like, at that moment, feeling like, man, there's a lot of conflict. We've got stuff we got to work on. And she was like, okay, I'm going to, Jim was working. She's like, I'm going to just write it out. I'm going to slow down, sit down, write it out. And, and, and it felt going into journaling like there were seven or eight things that they needed to talk through because they were not unified. And as she sat down and started writing it out, she's like, okay, well, that, okay, I understand that. that okay, maybe that's not as big of a conflict. And, and at the end of writing this out, there was really one. There was like one main thing they needed to talk about. And like her, her heart just started softening as she's praying and journaling and writing and said, I want to be in unity with my husband. I want to talk through this. And so they talked out the one thing. There was repentance and forgiveness where there was sin, and there was unity over conflicts. And instead of it being seven or eight things, there was one which was true, which was needed to work through. Oh, friends, in the midst of the feeling of conflict, the intensity, let's make war. They're wrong. It can be our spouse. It can be our kids. It can be our neighbors. It can be our friends. It can be our people in our community group. We can want to go to war. These people had been together for years beside each other in the battle. These guys are friends. These were the people who came with them over, to the, over the Jordan, kept their promise. They'd just been commended by Joshua about their loyalty to God, their love for God, all this amazing stuff. And it's like, now they failed. And they're about to make war on them. Assumptions are a breeding ground for war. Number two, there is much grace in curious questions. This is something I've been learning. One of my friends has been saying, curious questions, curious questions. Now, Phineas seems to do a good job asking questions. I'm not sure they're curious questions. He's like driving at home, but I do want to hit the curious idea. He has an intensity. He has a concern, but there's a wisdom here because they're not going to war like, hey, I'm going to lead you into battle. No, he's like, let's send a delegation. Let's slow it down, calm down. Let's make sure what we've heard is true. Let's get our questions answered because this is a big deal. Asking questions, staying curious is a wise practice when conflicts are around. Asking curious questions rather than making assumptions is a wonderful tool in the tool belt. Husbands, wives, kids, 
community group leaders, like all of this is wise. Asking curious questions, there's much grace there. Third, honoring God does not mean remaining quiet. Honoring God does not mean remaining quiet. Some people feel that if you defend yourself, you must be proud. You see this all the time and like Christians are getting accused of something and then like someone's like, I actually didn't do that. That's pride! Like internet kind of debates and stuff. It's like, I just said I didn't do that. Like, it's not pride to say I didn't do that, right? Jesus gives bold claims of truth when he has charges against him. Are you the king of the Jews? You said so. Luke chapter 23, Paul defends himself but appeals to Christ. But here, here's the thing. In speaking, in, in, in not remaining quiet, it's about honoring God, not guarding your reputation. It's about honoring God and lifting him up. That's exactly what these two and a half tribes do. They're like, God Almighty knows. God Almighty knows. These eastern tribes appeal to God. Number four, the victim card is a barrier to unity. The two and a half tribes could have gotten really offended and played the victim card and not ever had any reconciliation. The assumptions come, and here's what could have happened. How could you even come at us and ask in the first place? You see, they're like stepping back, and they're offended that anybody would ever be offended with them or even possibly question about the altar. They don't do that. That's our modern world. Everybody does this. They step back and step back. How could you even bring questions? That's a victim card. That's unhelpful in biblical reconciliation. But they don't do that. They just explain. They have an appeal. They have an intensity, but they explain. We are trying to honor the Lord. God is our witness. And it doesn't seem like it takes a long time to build unity here. This could have blown up for years and everybody's in counseling for years because of all the things that happened. No, there's like, here's, here's our charges. Here's what's happened. Okay, we misunderstood. This is good in our eyes. Now there's unity. You're good. We're good. We're moving forward. Now, if there were feelings of bitterness or resentment over years, they could come and talk about that and reconcile there too. But playing the victim card, which is our modern warfare, we, ha- we all have a default to do that in our current life. That's a tool we all have in our tool belt as Americans. It's like, well, how could you even say that? That is unhelpful and a barrier for unity. And number five, and this is obvious by this point, biblical peacemaking takes effort. This is hard. And you will have to do this at some point, if you haven't already. The weapons of the world are to lob the grenades, not wanting to hear the other side. The weapons of the world are to dig in and trench, I want to win. The weapons of the world are to play the victim. I'm going to step back when someone brings a question instead of move forward to understanding. But the weapons of the Lord are to make every effort, make every effort, to love God and love man. Make every effort to show love and good deeds. Knowing that the glory of God is at stake, our lives reflect Christ. We're living in a truthfulness of who Christ is. 
Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 should be a resounding anthem for us believers when we think about biblical reconciliation. Here's what Paul says. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all, here it is, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Are we eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? And then a sixth one, and this isn't on the screen because I made it up this morning, okay? So John's like, where is it? It's like, it's not on there. Some of our of unity. Friends, Jesus, our King, knew what it was like to make every, every effort when there was relational strain. He had washed Peter's feet, eaten many a meal with Peter, and then he's denied. I don't know him. A little girl talks to Peter. Weren't you with him? I don't know what you're talking about. Denied. Relationship severed. But Jesus did not leave the relationship severed. He initiated toward Peter. He initiated toward others. He kept initiating. And friends, Jesus has initiated toward us. As we prepare our hearts now to receive the Lord's Supper together, let us remember this is the Lord who initiated reconciliation toward us. Any disunity that you have with anybody in the room or anybody in your life is small compared to the disunity you have between you and your Creator, apart from Christ. This bread represents His body broken for us. We sin. We severed relationship, but He paid the price for reconciliation. This cup represents His shed blood. He bore the wrath and punishment that we deserve so we would have reconciliation, God and man together. If we are in Christ, we are fully reconciled to the Father and our resurrected King. But it doesn't end there. This small meal, if you will, has big implications for our reconciliation with one another. Because we've been reconciled to God, because we've been reconciled vertically, we can be reconciled horizontally. Where there's friction between husband and wife, that can be reconciled. Where there's friction between siblings, that can be reconciled. Where there's friction between parents and children or by people in the church or whatever the different relationship is, those can be reconciled in Christ. Brothers and sisters reconciled in Christ, because we have been forgiven much, we can forgive much. Because we've been forgiven much, we can forgive much. Friends, let's let Joshua 22, this passage on reconciliation, the Lord's kind initiative toward us on reconciliation, compel us to be those who reconcile. Let us be peacemakers, not peace fakers. Let's be peacemakers, not peace breakers. Let us be biblical peace 
makers. Christopher, if you'll come on up. We're going to take time to pray. Prior to going to the table, we have five different stations, two back in the corners, three up here. And I just encourage you to pray and ask the Lord, is there any crack or disunity between you and the Lord where you say, Jesus, again, I run to your cross where full reconciliation comes, full forgiveness comes. Please forgive me, Lord, for for this area. This is normal Christian life, repentance to the Lord and reconciliation with Him. But also, not just the vertical, but the horizontal. Are there brothers and sisters in Christ that there are cracks with that the Lord wants you to mend? There's a brother or sister in Christ that you need to talk to today. You can pull them out in the lobby or outside. You're welcome to do that. If you need to hold off from partaking in the Lord's Supper, hold off. It's okay. We come to the table saying, Lord, we want unity. We want to honor you in all of our life, with all our love, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you're not a follower of Christ, we'd encourage you, instead of taking the bread and cup, take Christ today. Turn from your sins and trust Jesus as your Savior, and we'll welcome you to the meal the next time. The unity of God's people is hard, but it is worthy work. So friends, we're going to just take some time to pray individually, and when you feel ready, you can go to one of the stations, head back to your seat. You can continue praying, and we will partake together in a few moments. So you can go ahead when you're ready.